This weekend in the Revelation series, I'm going to read Revelation 2, 12 to 17, pray, and then we're going to get to work. Cool? All right, let's pray. Rather, let's read Revelation 2, 12 to 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. God, as we head to the city of Pergamum this weekend and we hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches... God, I pray that we would have ears to hear all that you have to say. And for those of us in the, in the world, God, so prone to retreat from the world or to accommodate and start to conform, God, may we learn repentance and Jesus' call here for the church to repent. And may that be a, a gift to us, a sweet word to us. So all that you have for us this weekend out of this text, God, I pray that we would have ears to hear, humble and soft hearts. So that we might hear your words and change and worship you with fidelity and um, a joyful heart. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus has written a letter to the church at Pergamum. And he has an interesting description of the city that they dwell in. And he says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne in is where Satan dwells. Now, every once in a while, you'll see these commercials for these different states in America, right? Trying to get you to visit there or come live there. Right? So here we're close to Michigan. What's Michigan's tagline? Pure Michigan, right? Great lakes, great times. And what's Michigan pushing? And they got, they got the scenery, the lakes, the trees, come, chill, relax, come vacation here, live here, right? How about Florida, the sunshine state, right? Do you really have to advertise and market Florida, right? I mean, Mark, Florida says, uh, must be the sunrise. And Florida's got that. They got the sun, they got the beaches, beautiful beaches, beautiful sun, come, vacation, let's do this thing, right? South Carolina, their tagline is this, made for vacation. I'm in. I'm sold. Made for vacation. I want to go there. I want to go to the south. I want to go to the warm weather past September. I want to go there. Cool, right? And so here's these states like, hey, come visit. Here's what we have to offer. Pergamum, where Satan dwells. Pergamum, Satan's throne, just around the corner. It's like, yeah, don't sign me up. You know, like, I, that's going to attract a certain person, right? But uh, not very family friendly. It doesn't sound like that. Now, you don't want Jesus on your advertising and marketing team. It's just not going to go well. Why? Because Jesus sees this city with pure eyes. He knows what's going on here. He sees this city with the eyes of the flame of fire that we saw in Revelation 1. Pure. He sees down to the core exactly what's going on there. And the fact that Jesus calls this city a place where Satan not only dwells but has a throne there. Right? He has, some, he has influence. His will is being done in this city. 
It tells us that it's a very difficult place to live, very difficult place to be a Christian, very difficult place to remain faithful as a Christian. And this is exactly what's going on in Pergamum, a very difficult city to be a Christian and to remain faithful. So let's talk a little bit about the city, a little bit of background. The city of Pergamum was built on a great mountain. Uh, we have a pic here for you. It was built up really, really high on the side of this mountain, on the top of it. It stood up high for everyone in that region to see. Kind of the Washington, D.C. of its day. It was the capital of Asia Minor, okay? So we're talking modern-day Turkey here is what we're talking. This is exactly where we're at in the world. The city was known as the Acropolis, which meant high place. It sat on this mountain very, very high. The city was lifted up for all in this region to see. This view of the city was spectacular, the view of it. And the view from the city was spectacular. This was a place to live and a place to visit. One ancient historian said of Pergamum that it was by far the most distinguished city in Asia. Also, too, because of its elevation, it was safe and strategic in terms of war. So being up high, you could see your enemies from miles away. You were almost impossible to conquer. And because of that, it was said back in, uh, in uh, his day, Alexander the Great stored a ton of gold here in Pergamum. It was very, very secure. So the people of affluence, the people that had means, lived in the city for its view and its security. And then the valley below was where the more common people lived. And the only reason that they would come up to the city is for its festivals, for its entertainment, for all that the city had to offer there. So special events, plays, various entertainment for worship as well. And there was a huge amphitheater in the city. It was kind of a happening city, right? It also said of Pergamum that in its day it had a 200,000 book library. Very, very impressive for, we're talking around somewhere around 90 AD. It's pretty impressive. Most notably, beyond the aesthetics of the city, the city was known for its polytheism. So multiple gods were worshipped here in the city and its pagan worship. There was a temple dedicated to Zeus. So if you wanted to worship Zeus, there was a whole temple and a huge statue to Zeus. In fact, it wasn't until the Germans conquered this area that that statue of Zeus was torn down. And so there was a statue and a temple to Zeus there. A variety of Greek gods were worshipped there, including Dionysus, the goddess of Greek wine. Okay, the goddess of wine. And uh, there was a temple dedicated to her. And as you can imagine, uh, worship in that temple meant engaging in partying, getting drunk. There was temple prostitution going on. Orgies were happening there. That's what it meant to worship Dionysus. Party. Give yourself away. Right? Sexual activity. That was worship there. People would come there to this temple for shows, for entertainment, for music, for pleasure. And so you can see this is the kind of a, this kind of city. Kind of a Las Vegas of its day. Kind of a party town. However, in whatever way you wanted to indulge yourself, Pergamum had everything. Everything was there at your fingertips. Now, even more notable than that, Pergamum being the capital of this province, it was mostly known for the center of the imperial cult. So as you know, right around this time, 90 AD, Rome is in power. Rome's in authority over all this, all, over all this land here. In fact, all the churches that are being addressed here in Revelation uh, chapters 2 and 3 were under Rome's rule and authority. And because it was the capital, it was the center of the imperial cult, right? There was a temple there to Caesar. In Pergamum, Caesar was lord. In fact, I, I, I noted that, uh, that on top of the city was called the, the high place, the Acropolis. Well, even elevated from the city was this high uh, altar, this high statue with the inscription of the Roman emperor at that time, Domitian. At the top, stood above everything, was an inscription, a picture of the Roman emperor at this time. 
He was worshipped as a god. And even gave himself titles like God, Lord, and Savior. In Pergamum, Caesar worship was required. Any who denied the lordship of Caesar could face death. Now imagine being a Christian in that context. Persecution for your faith. Persecution for not worshiping Caesar or going along with what everyone else is doing. Always looming over you. In Pergamum, they would have had pagan festivals, right, for Domitian. They would hold these huge festivals where they come and food and drink and partying on, on, on behalf of and to the name of Domitian. What if you didn't go to the party? What if you stayed in and your neighbor noticed? Or what if you went but you weren't celebrating along with everybody else? You weren't getting excited and happy at the right times? You weren't moving along with whatever was being said or even repeated or maybe they had some chanting or some singing going on? What if you were off to the side and didn't participate but you were there? You would be suspect. People would question your loyalty. And Rome dealt harshly with treason. That's the whole idea of the cross, right? Rome crucified people all the time. All the time. And they would lift them up high and kill them by asphyxiation on a cross and said, this is what it looks like to come against Rome. This is what it looks like to oppose Caesar. The church of Pergamum already had one martyr, Antipas. Would there be a next? Am I going to be the next Antipas? Am I going to be killed for rejecting Caesar as Lord? Am I going to die? Are they going to be at my funeral next? Imagine being a Christian in this context. So here we have this magnificent city with every and any vice available to you. Pagan worship of various kinds, a myriad of gods and goddesses at the very center of emperor worship and a city that oppressed the church and the truth of Jesus. No wonder why Jesus says Satan dwells here. He has a throne here. You can see that this is a difficult place. And as difficult a place as this was, there were some things that encouraged the heart of Jesus towards this church. In the midst of this pagan, polyistic, polytheistic, pleasure-driven culture, this church stood strong. Look at verse 13. I know where you dwell, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Even in the days when Antipas was killed, even when the days when it got really, really bad for you, even when persecution was at its peak, you stood strong, you held fast my name, you did not deny my faith. You were faithful to the faith. You were faithful to my name. They didn't stray away from Christ. They stood strong in a place that says there are multiple gods. The church says, no, there's only one God, and it's the God of the Bible, the Old Testament scriptures. They stood strong in a place that said Domitian was Savior and Lord, come and worship him. They said, no, there's only one Savior, and that's Jesus. They didn't stray away in doctrine. They didn't stray away in creed. They were faithful. They showed a fidelity to the truth of Jesus in that culture, even with all of its pressures. And that's hard to do, especially here, especially here. You know, it's hard to be the church in the culture. It's hard to remain uninfluenced by the culture. And they did that, some of them at least. I love how Jesus says to his church, I know where you dwell. I know where you dwell. You know, sometimes when you read the scripture, sometimes you have to sense the mood of the text. And as I look at those words, I know where you dwell, I I, I hear a heart of sympathy from Jesus to his church. I know where you dwell, guys. It's hard. It's difficult. And this is such an encouragement to me because the God of the Bible, the God of Christianity, the God of the gospel... It's not a God that created the world, but is distant and far off and doesn't know what it's like to be us. 
in the gospel, what do we have? We have a God who came in Christ, right? He took on flesh. He came to this world. He knows what it's like to live this life with all of its pressures, with all of its temptations. And so here we see from the heart of Jesus, he's showing his heart of, of being a sympathetic high priest that he is. Hebrews 4, right? Hebrews four fifteen. We have a priest, guys, and he's sympathetic. He knows. And Jesus is saying to the church, I know where you dwell, guys, and it is hard and it is difficult. I love that. Satan has some massive influence here. It's difficult. You guys are doing well for the most part, most of you. Now, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't have it against them that they dwell in such a city, right? It's not like, hey, Jesus is like, hey, this is really, really hard. Why don't you guys pack up your bags and take off? Why don't you head down into the valley, go move somewhere else? You know, it's not like that. Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, move out of the city. He doesn't call them to repentance for living in the city. He's not calling them to repentance for that, for living in Pergamum. And the reason for that is, is because the, G, the church of Jesus Christ is called to be in the world, to be in Pergamum. They're exactly where Jesus wants them, in this city. Now, it would have been really, really easy to hop on the Pergamum Church Facebook page, shoot out a message to everybody who's friends there, and say, you know what, guys, this is hard, this is difficult. Tomorrow morning, 7 a.m., pack up your junk, peace out. We're taking off. This is hard, Right? That would have been really easy. Jesus doesn't tell them to do that. Doesn't tell them to do that. He wants them in that city. He wants his church in the world. Jesus' call to his people, to us, to Bethel, to you, is the difficult tension of being in the world, but not of it. John 17, verses 14 and 15. The difficult tension of being in the world, but not of it. John 17. Jesus wants them in that city. But he doesn't want them to re- resemble the city. And it has been the struggle of the church in every age and in every culture to figure out the balance between in but not of. Very hard for the churches at Revelation. Very hard for the churches in Chicagoland, Northwest Indiana. Can I get an amen on that? Is it hard to be in the world but not of church? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And when Jesus says in the world, he wants you to be in the world. He doesn't mean just physical proximity, though that's included. He means in the fabric, in the life, in relationships with those in our context, neighbors, people in our communities, Caesar worshipers. He wants us engaging there. We already saw in chapter one that Jesus has made us a kingdom of what? Priests. He's made made us a kingdom of priests. Priests love people. Priests are in relationships with people. They love them. They're in relationship with them. They're about the people. They get involved in people's lives. They invest relationally. They have friends who don't know Christ. Jesus' call to be in the world doesn't just mean I have an address in the world. It means I have a presence and an influence in the world. So how are we doing with that? How are we doing with being a kingdom of priests? How are your relationships And as we try to ride this hard line of in but not of, the two ditches that the church can fall into is one of resemblance and one of retreat. One of resemblance and one of retreat. When the, when, when the line of being in but not of gets hard, what happens is we end up caving and conforming, that's resemblance, or we end up just packing our bags, taking off, and not investing because it's hard. That's when we retreat. And Jesus has called us to neither of those. He's not called us to resemblance nor retreat. He's called us to be in but not of. 
Jesus has called us to neither cultural conformity nor cultural escape. And can we just be honest for a moment and say that it's so easy to retreat? Can we just say that? It's so easy to not shake that hand, get to know that neighbor, go to that place, make those relationships. It's so easy to just detach and retreat. Can we just be honest and say, yes, it's hard to do that. And sometimes I'm a coward and I'd rather just retreat. Okay. I have my hand raised because I know that. It's so easy to just take off, to not be a kingdom of priests. It's so easy to just escape back into our holy huddles, our Christian ghettos, lock ourselves in the basement of the church and see church as bomb shelter, right? The world's going to hell in a handbasket. Let's just huddle with everyone that looks like us, talks like us, dresses like us. Oh, gosh. (laughs) And let's just escape. Let's just get away. So easy. And you know, some in the church even encourage this kind of separation attitude when they preach separation from the world without the nuance and the balance of presence in the world. And I'm all about 1 John, do not love the world, but I'm all about Revelation 1, we're a kingdom of priests. And somehow we need to figure out how those two come together and we need to hold them in tension. So very easy to retreat. It's also very easy to resemble, to accommodate, to start conforming. It was for Pergamum. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there. Some. Some. I, lo- I-, I love this point. This is what I have against the, uh, the, your entire church. All of you. This is what I have against all of you. You have some there. I wish I could mead this out. I wish I could mead the implications of community out here. Maybe some other time. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some there who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. It seems as though where Ephesus stood strong, Pergamum bought in. Where Ephesus stood strong, Pergamum brought in. And this is where Jesus here draws this parallel between the false teaching that the, Perg- that the, the church of Pergamum was uh, tolerating to the, the teaching of Balak back in Numbers 24. And we're not going to get into all of that, and nor do we know all the specific details of the teaching of the Nicolaitans. But Jesus is really clear to tell us what this false teaching led to, and it boils down to these two things, idolatry and immorality. Idolatry and sexual immorality. Now notice, there's really no signs of this church falling away from the truth of Jesus to begin really worshiping these other gods. It's not like they've punted on a fidelity to Christ. They were saying, yes, no, Jesus is Savior. There's only one God. But what happens in, what, what was happening here is in practice, they started to adapt some of the practices of that culture there. The teaching of the Nicolaitans, whatever the content, had led them away from worship of Jesus idolatry and to go outside the bounds of God's given context of sexuality, sexual immorality. And in the Las Vegas of its day, there were plenty opportunities for both. Now, we're not going to get deep into idolatry and sexual immorality, especially not sexual immorality, because Thyatira, which is our next church, almost exclusively deals with this issue. So we're going to be, we're going to be handling that next week. And idolatry, we got into that a ton in our Ten Commandments series. But for the sake of our time today, we see that even though we're roughly 1,900 years removed from the year that this letter was written, it seems like not much has really changed in the church. Same old, same old, same old pitfalls, same old struggles. Even though the objects and the places of worship have changed, there's still plenty of opportunities to engage in idolatry and sexual immorality in our day, in our region. We're really not much different than Pergamum, really. 
right? So for the sake of our time today, sexual immorality. Any and all sex outside of God's covenant relationship between a man and a woman in a context of marriage is wrong. That includes our thoughts and our fantasies. Every and any sexual thought, lust, contact outside of the covenant relationship of marriage is sinful. This is what we're talking about when we talk about sexual immorality. Is that a problem in our day? Is that a problem in our church? Is that a problem in your life? A struggle in your life? It is in mine. Struggle in mine. In the same way too, idolatry. We also struggle with idolatry in our day. Anything, any object, idea, moment, movement, place, person, relationship, location, hobby, it doesn't matter what it is. Literally anything in this world that we look to to provide what only God can provide to that thing, we make an idol out of it. And oftentimes they're good things. Good things. Jobs. Family. Paychecks. Material possessions, good things. But when we take good things and elevate them to God things, that's idolatry. To where we give and sacrifice our time, our talent, our treasure, our affection, it is that thing we worship. If you're obsessed about thinking about this thing, you spend money on this thing, you give your time to this thing, that is your God. That's idolatry. And it doesn't have to have a temple and it doesn't have to have a statue for us to worship it. Also, too, when we think about glory, there's two ideas that really make up glory. One is weightiness, importance, and significance, and beauty and excellence. Whatever, whatever we ascribe importance, weightiness, significance, beauty, and excellence to, to that thing we give glory. That's idolatry. Is idolatry a problem in our day? Is idolatry a problem in our church? It is in my life, and it is in our church. Bethel, we need to pay attention. Don't say, yeah, man, that oh, Pergamum, yeah. Man, jacked up, right? Yeah. Man, I'm so glad I live in America. So glad I live in Northwest Indiana. It's not like that. Yeah, no. We need to pay attention. And notice what he says here. He says that they hold to the teaching of Balaam. They hold to this. This wasn't like they had a couple of slip-ups or that they fell a couple of times. They cling to this as a way of life. They really bought in. Really bought in. They were slipping into this as a lifestyle. It had become an unbroken pattern in their lives. And what's strange about this church is that they showed a fidelity to Jesus in doctrine, but some strayed from Jesus in their deeds. They showed a fidelity in their doctrine, but they strayed in their deeds. Theologically accurate, practically apostate. Titus 1.16 says this, Those who profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. It's how do we make sense of those who hold onto robust historic Christian doctrines while being given to idolatry and sexual immorality? Is it possible to give all the right answers when it comes to Christianity and at the same time live a lifestyle of sinful indulgence? Is it possible to ace the theological exam while constantly rebelling? Is it possible to say we worship Jesus alone while the evidence of our lives says that we give our time, talents, treasures, and affections and worship over to lesser things than Jesus? Is it possible to be a Christian and have no evidence of repentance? Do you know somebody like this? Are you this person? This was basically me when I was 19 years old. We had this youth pastor back in the day. His name was Don Helton. Some of you guys remember him. And I was going through this season where I was like, I, and I was, I was, I was, I was basically this, this, I was basically this church. 
I knew all the right answers, living in sin. I had this season where I was like, Don, will you meet with me? I think I got in trouble, arrested, who knows. And I said, Don, will you meet with me? I don't want to live like this anymore. I want to, I want to, I want to love and I want to love Jesus. And usually these seasons for me, they'd come and go. They're only like two, three, you know, four weeks, month long. And I would just eventually just end up going right back to the way that I lived. And so Don was meeting with me and it was very, very clear over time. There's no fruit here, right? I was showing no signs of repentance. And I was even being boastful about the sinful things that I was going to do. I was being prideful and really, really glorying in my shame. And Don came over one night really to break up with me, okay? You ever had someone like a mentor break up with you? You ever had someone in your small group break up with you? Like, yeah, we're not coming to your small group anymore. Small group breakup. So Don came over to break up with me, uh, which good for him, okay? He's wasting his time, really. Okay, I was showing no repentance. There's nothing really more to say to me. <clears throat> and he said, Tony, I don't think you're a Christian. And I got, I got offended. And I'm like, what do you mean I'm not a Christian? I got mad. He goes, man, you're showing no signs of repentance or remorse over your actions at all. There is no fruit here. And I'm like, dude, don't tell me I'm not a Christian. And I got in his grill. I go, dude, I'm a Christian. My trust and my faith are in Jesus Christ the eternal son of God who came down in my place for my sin, bore the weight of my penalty and my sin on his shoulders on the cross, died, was buried, rose again. My trust and my faith are in that alone. That's my righteousness. That's my security. Completely unrepentant in lifestyle, totally theologically accurate. What do you do with a person like that? What do you do? I'm like, I'm, not, I'm like, you're saying I'm not a Christian? Penal, substitutionary, atonement, justification by faith, grace alone. I'm busting it out. Right? What do you do with that? What's misfiring in that moment? What's misfiring? What's the missing link? And I would say that I, back when I was 19, 20, God saved me in the year 2000, I tend to be the norm in the church in America. I tend to be the norm. What's misfiring? Jesus tells us there's a lack of repentance. Therefore, repent. What's missing? Repentance. Repentance is missing. And what we see there is that there was some in this church of Pergamum who fell into idolatry and sexual immorality, but ultimately, I'll tell you that they fell out of repentance. They fell out of repentance. Jesus contends with this church here, and he tells them that repentance is the key. Therefore, repent. If not, I'm going to come to you with the sword of my mouth, and I'm going to war against you. He who has ears, let him hear. Notice the grace of Jesus to contend with these Christians. I don't know what category or camp you have repentance in, but if, there isn't, if, there isn't, if it, repentance isn't peppered with grace, love, and mercy from God, you have repentance in the wrong category. Notice Jesus here. He's contending with the church. He's not just sitting back saying, you know what, if you want to do that, cool. No, he comes to them and says specifically to them what grieves his heart. He puts his finger on that thing that grieves him. And he graciously extends the invitation to repent, to return, to return to him. Repentance is a gift. It's a gift from a gracious God who loves us. Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear. He who has a soft heart, a humble heart, one who's sensitive to the word of God, to the voice of Jesus. I didn't have an ear to hear back when I was 19. He who has an ear, let him hear. In other words, the person who's humble enough to repent, 
The unrepentant heart is a hard heart. The unrepentant heart does not have an ear to hear, but Jesus still contends and extends his grace. This group that Jesus is contending here with has fallen out of repentance. Let's talk about repentance. Let's talk about repentance really quick. Martin Luther sparked the Protestant Reformation by nailing what is known as the 95 Theses to Castle Church Door in Wittenberg, Germany. The first of these 95 theses read like this. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed that the whole life of believers should be one of repentance. The whole life of the believer should be one of repentance. What does Jesus say is missing in Pergamum? Repentance. How did Luther see repentance? It's a rhythm in the Christian life. It's a spiritual discipline. It's a practice for Christians. He emphasized, Luther here, the essential importance of repentance in the everyday life of the believer. He saw it more as a daily rhythm, something we should walk in. Instead of seeing repentance as a scattered, right, a scattered series of bitter low points in the life of compromised Christian, Luther saw it in a positive light. He saw it more as a daily rhythm. And Jesus says to the church of Pergamum, what's missing? Repentance. What does Jesus graciously say to those who have wandered into patterns of idolatry and sexual sin? Turn. Repent. Turn from that which kills, robs, and destroys and turn back to me. To some, repentance just means stop sinning. It's just, a mere, it's just, it's just merely just a, a stop doing the bad things. To some, holiness is just this. Uh, the absence of impurity or the absence of sin. But God has not has not only saved us from something, he's also saved us to something, and that's a relationship with Jesus. So the, the message of the Christian life is not, hey, stop just doing these bad things. No, it's, it's repent, turn from this, which is going to kill, rob, and destroy, rob you of your joy, destroy your life, and turn to me, turn to a relationship with me. I love how Brad pointed out to us in Ephesus that Jesus is not just a doctrine. He's a person that we worship. A risen, glorified person who's at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf. We worship him. We're in relationship with him. He's not just a creed. He's not just a theological stance. That was a great point, Brad. Repentance is not just a one-time act of conversion. It's the ongoing mark in the life of the Christian. We turn and believe again and again and again and again. Repentance is not just that thing we did when we became Christians. It's an entire way of life to maintain Christian joy and closeness to Christ for those who are so easily prone to daily leaving Jesus like myself. In some way, in some form, every single day, I wander from Christ. In belief, in practice, in heart. And Jesus offers to me the gracious gift every day to return back to him. And to rediscover his gracious, loving heart in the face of my sin. So I don't know what camp or category you have repentance in. If it's not in the category of gift, you're getting repentance wrong. When you think repentance, you think eyebrows down, arms folded like this, right? Jesus is kind of... No, he's like, repent. Turn from that. Come back to me. Every day we rediscover afresh the deceptive lives, lies of our own hearts and the true and better treasure we have in Christ and repentance. Every day we rediscover that. Repentance is a great gift of God to daily be awakened to the beauty of Christ and to be received back forgiven and loved. And I love how, I love how Jesus frames this to the church. The entire chapter 1 
The entirety of chapter one is Jesus saying this. I am better. I'm more supreme. I'm more glorious than anything you got in this, going on in this world. All your pressures, all your multiple gods, all your pseudo saviors. I am above them. I'm supreme over them. Come and worship me. And that's exactly how he frames repentance in this chapter. Jesus is showing himself as above everything and anything in this city. That's how we need to see repentance. Turning from lesser things to the greater thing in Christ. That's repentance. Jonathan Dodson said at Gospel Center Discipleship, we turn from trust in little gods to trust in the one true God. Repentance is turning from belief in a false promise in order to turn in faith to a true and satisfying promise. Repentance is an exchange of joys, lesser for the greater. And if we see repentance as a gift, repentance is for rejoicing. Repentance is for religious affection. Repentance stokes affection for Christ as we work through that process of, yes, I believe that lie. I did that thing that grieved your heart, God. I see my idolatry. I see my misplaced worship. I'm coming back to you again and telling you that I'm sorry. Forgive me. I did that thing. It was a lesser joy, a false promise. I got hoodwinked again. I'm coming back to you and showing you that I love you and I want you. And we rediscover God's steadfast covenant love to forgive us always. That's repentance. We discover his ridiculously amazing grace. Now notice the two-part approach for Jesus here in bringing this church to repentance. He uses a warning and he uses promises. Jesus' two-fold approach to repentance, to bringing his church back to him, is twofold. Warnings and promises. God motivates our discipleship, our faithfulness, and our fidelity to him. Not just in doctrine, but in deed. With both his unblushing promises of reward, as well as the sober warnings of judgment. Warnings and promises. Warnings push us to repentance. Promises woo us to repentance. Okay? Warnings drive us to repentance. Promises draw us into repentance. But guess what? It doesn't matter if it's a warning or if it's a promise. Where's the end? We come back to Christ. Christ. The purpose of both are the same. Warnings push. Promises woo. Warnings drive, promises draw. Where's the warning? Therefore, repent. If not, I'm going to come to you soon and war against you with the sword of my mouth. Where's the promise? To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name on it, on that stone, that no one knows except the one who receives it. Warnings speak to the harsh realities of rebelling against Christ. Promises speak of the joyous realities of trusting and following Christ. But both lead us back to Christ. So let's first talk about warnings. Warnings in scripture are given from the heart of love of a father. Again, how do you see warnings? Is that sprinkled with grace? Is that sprinkled with mercy? That is our God. He loves us unwaveringly so. And so when he gives us warnings, it comes from the heart of a father who loves us. You know, it's 4th of July. And my 8-year-old and my 6-year-old want to go blow off quarter sticks of dynamite, shoot bottle rockets off while their buddies standing around. And I'm like, whoa, Right? So I have to rein them in, get down at their level, look them in the eye, and talk to them about the harsh realities and the dangers of fireworks. Right? And you give an eight-year-old an inch, man, he's going to go and, like, I want to be on the crew at Crown Point blowing off the fireworks. Like, where's my lighter? Right? I want to do that, Dad. And I got to get down on my knees. Buddy, buddy, listen to me. Dude, this is no joke. Fireworks can blow your hand off, man. Fireworks can hurt the person around you. 
And it's like, we didn't get it the first time. We have to have this conversation multiple times, right? And so warnings, just like in that moment, what's my heart towards my sons? Love for them, their safety, and also love for the other people that are around, all the other kids too. That's the heart. And when Jesus gives a warning, it comes from the heart of someone who loves them. He loves them. And Jesus issues a warning because he knows the consequence and he knows the pain. That if you don't turn from your sin, if you don't repent from this immorality and from this idolatry, I'm going to come to you soon and I'm going to war against you with the sword from my mouth. Now, I'm not sure what all this means, but I have two things for us. The sword of Jesus' mouth refers to the definitive righteous judgments of Jesus. His definitive, decisive, pure righteousness, righteous judgments. And he alone, Jesus alone, has the power and the authority to forgive your sin or to judge your sin. Jesus is the only one with this power and authority to either forgive your sin or to judge your sin. And in the end, only the judgment of Jesus matters. So I don't care what you say about me or what even I say about me. In the end, only Jesus' word matters about me. Nothing else matters except the word of Jesus towards you, towards this church. Now, you don't want Jesus warring against you with his words. You don't want that. You don't want the conquering, coming king warring against you with this sword coming out of his mouth. You don't want to be on the bad side of that sword. You don't want that at all. And when he comes, he says, I'm going to come war with you. This is not like, hey, let's sit down and have a conversation. This is not like, hey, let's go to Starbucks for coffee and talk about this. When he says, I'm going to war against you with the swords of his mouth, he's speaking about an eternal verdict. I don't know you. I don't know you. Depart from me. I've never known you. I can't think of a more horrifying thought. I can't think of a more horrendous, horrifying, sobering thought that I'm going to stand across from Jesus one day and he's going to say, I never knew you. The horror of that moment, I pray it sinks in for some of us. Now, we need to remember the gospel. We don't work to receive a verdict of forgiveness. We don't work to receive a verdict of acceptance, loved, justified. Jesus worked for that on our behalf. It was his death, his resurrection that earned us that verdict from God. We're saved by grace alone, through faith in Christ, not deeds. But it's a sobering thought to think that my unrepentance might mean that I've never tasted of that grace, truly. It's a sobering thought to think that my unrepentance means I never really trusted in Christ. That I might not be forgiven. That I might not be accepted. That I not, might, might not be loved, justified. This is the point of the warning. Are you my child? Do I know you? Do you know me? Are you a Christian? Because their unrepentance would say otherwise. And so he warns them. He warns them. Warnings push. Warnings drive. Now, here's where Jesus shows himself better. What's Rome known for? Intimidation, war, the sword. That's what Rome's known for. And in this culture, for this church, to oppose Caesar meant that you would fear his sword. Now, how encouraging and how promising, how strengthening would it be for this church to hear this? Rome might have a sword, but I have a more powerful sword. Whose sword are you going to fear? Because they can kill the body, but I can kill both body and soul in hell. Who should you fear? And so at the same time, this is a warning, but it's also like Jesus is better. I need to trust in him. You see that? You see how repentance is framed there? It's not be scared, okay? 
Warnings certainly drive that fear, but it's also, man, I'm better. I'm greater than Rome. I'm more powerful than Rome. I come with a greater war than Rome. Trust in me. Trust in me. Warnings push, promises woo. Now for the promises. Jesus promises to the one who conquers the hidden manna with the white stone with the new name on it. Now these promises relate to the needs of these Christians that they were trying to fulfill through idolatry and sexual immorality. At the heart of idolatry and sexual immorality is, is we're wanting something. The hidden manna speaks to those who are struggling in idolatry. When you hear the word manna, what do you think of? God's people in the wilderness, 40 years, God was faithful to provide for their needs, right? He made provision for them. He cared for them. He loved them. What do we look for when we turn to things in this world? We're looking for provision. And all the time we turn to these lesser gods to provide for us joy, acceptance, peace, worth, value, whatever it is, whatever your thing is. If you're looking to your job to provide what only God can, if you're looking to your girlfriend or your spouse or or your bros to provide for you what only God can, we're shifting away from a fidelity of worship with Christ in deeds And we're moving on to false idolatry worship where we're looking for them to provide our needs only that God can. And Jesus is saying this, to the one who conquers, I'm going to give you the hidden manna. I'm the one who truly provides. I'm the one who truly gives you what you need. In the city where people were turning to Zeus, Caesar, and sex for fulfillment, Jesus says to his church, I have the true manna, the true fulfillment, the true satisfaction. Repent and turn to me. Be satisfied in me. Stop messing around with pseudo-saviors who never can satisfy and never follow through on their promises. I'll give you the true fulfillment, the true satisfaction. In a similar way to the manna, at the heart of sexual sin is most often a desire for intimacy, to be known, to be loved, to be in relationship. The white stone speaks to those needs. Now, there's a few theories about what the white stone actually means, um, and they all kind of have the same meaning, but the one that I think fits the text and also the cultural context best is white stone as a ticket theory. So I already told you that in Pergamum, they have these huge festivals, and in the city were all these white stones kind of laying around. In the valley, they weren't there. And so to be able to gain entrance into some of these parties and really some of the significance and the acceptance that comes along with being in that city, you had to have a white stone. And so just like you go to see, right, the new Transformers movie, you need a ticket, right? You want to go to a concert, you want to go to an event, you need a ticket. If you want an entrance into Pergamum, you needed a white stone. Oftentimes it was seen as a ticket. And really the white stone is a picture and a promise of acceptance. Welcoming in, receiving in, you're in. And Jesus extends a white stone ticket into a far greater relationship to the church. Here's your white stone. Who gives the stone? Jesus gives the stone, doesn't he? Saying what? Salvation is not by works. He gives it of his own grace. To a church that will really never be of the world as strangers and aliens, no matter how hard it tries, Jesus says, I accept you. I welcome you. I welcome you into my new covenant relationship. I extend this white stone to you as a gift. I give you admission into my salvation, into a covenant relationship with me, into an intimate relationship with me. Come and know what it's like to be in relationship with me and quit messing around with sexual immorality, which lies to you about the acceptance and intimacy and welcoming. Also notice there's a new name written on this white stone. What's with the new name? God's about new names. Names have to do with identity. In Christ, we have new identity. God's about making people new. 
New birth, new creation, new identity, new name. He extends to you a white ticket of entrance into salvation. He provides for you as our true God always. And on that stone is a new name, new identity, right? And so we find this in the Bible. When someone, when someone turns to Christ, when someone turns to the God of the Old Testament, in Old Testament times, he gives them a new name. So Abraham used to be Abram. Peter used to be Cephas. Paul used to be Saul. What's the deal with the new name? New identity. You're new. That's not who you are anymore. And some of those people were saved out of this lifestyle. Some of these people were saved out of this idolatry and sexual immorality. And Jesus is saying to them this, you're not that person anymore. You're trying to run back into a lifestyle that I rescued you out of. And you're not going to ultimately be able to do that. Why? Because you're new. You're brand new. If you're in Christ, you're a new creature. Your old self has died. We've received a new identity in Christ. Jesus is essentially saying to those who are in Pergamum, you don't need to worry about the identity and the prestige that comes along with being accepted in this city. I accept you. You have a new identity, a new name. And he contends with their idolatry and their immorality with this. That's not you anymore. How many of you have tried, after becoming a new creature, how many of you have tried to run back into the lifestyle that you once lived after tasting of the grace of God? I've done that. I've tried to do that. And you know what? It's miserable. You want to know why? Because it's not me anymore. That dude died. The 20-year-old Tony Sorcy, summer of 2000, that dude died. And when God saved you, your old self died. And what you're experiencing when you try to race back into what God rescued you from is an identity crisis. And you're never, ever going to be comfortable there because it's not who you are anymore. It's not you. Because God's rescued you from that. We can never go back to what we once did as who we once were. Because God has extended to us a white stone with a new name. He forgave us. He made us alive. He brought us into a new relationship with him. And so this church at Pergamum needs to realize the supremacy of Christ. Pushed into repentance through warnings. Drawn into repentance through promises. And to come and see that Christ is over Zeus and the variety of other places in this world that we look to for our daily provision. Christ is over Caesar and all the other pseudo-saviors who can never deliver on their false promises of redemption and a joy-filled life. Christ is over sex and the myriad of other lesser pleasures than knowing and being known by God himself. That Christ is over Dionysus. Christ is over partying, getting drunk, doing drugs. Christ is over the you-only-live-once approach to life that teaches us to chase after all our heart's desire. Christ is over everyone and everything. Repent and turn back to me. That's the letter to the church of Pergamum. Now, really, really quick, I wrote a little benediction that I want to close this out with. Dustin's going to come and sing a song, and that'll be it. In closing, there are some here who have strayed in heart and practice from Jesus. You claim to know the truth about him. You can articulate it well, but you've fallen out of repentance And you're holding on to a lifestyle of rebellion. God knows that this world is hard to live in. And he is sympathetic to our weaknesses as our great high priest. Jesus is lovingly, graciously, with the heart of a father, contending with you, pleading with you, using both his warnings and his promises to push you and to woo you to himself, to move you to repentance. Do not take lightly these words. Turn from your sin Turn back to Jesus. He is ever ready to receive you back and rejoice in your returning to him. Get used to this repentance because it is the rhythm that God has called us to in the Christian life. 
as we discover daily the sin that indwells us, we enter into repentance and also discover there that Jesus is a far more supreme than anything else in this world and his grace is greater than all of our sin. God, you are amazing. 